If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Back in our June issue, we ran an extended feature on history's greatest mysteries. That was accompanied by a poll in which we asked you to vote for your favourite. All this week on the podcast, we've been delving into the stories of the five mysteries that came out top in the poll. And today, we're talking about the mystery that made it to number one, the disappearance of the princes in the tower. We're actually very glad to hear that so many of you are intrigued by this mystery, as I am currently working on a special podcast series on this very subject. Keep an eye out for that later this year. In the meantime, I spoke to the historian who nominated this mystery, Nathan Armin, to find out more about why it still fascinates so many people. Recently, we ran a poll about history's greatest mysteries. Um, We got historians to nominate 20 different mysteries that they were intrigued by, and you nominated The Princess in the Tower. So as it turns out, um, our readers have voted online, and The Princess in the Tower has, I think it's fair to say, stormed it. It's won by a country mile. First of all... Are you surprised by that? I'm I'm not, to be honest. Anybody who studies the medieval period or anybody who's interested in things such as the Tudors or the Plantagenets, they obviously know the Princes in the Tower is the great mystery of the medieval age. Um, it has all of the factors anybody wants from a mystery. You know, the classic ingredients. We've got shadowy conspiracies, a royal involvement, which always pulls pulls the Panthers in. We've got innocent victims. And, of course, with it being a mystery, it is unresolved and it's likely that it never will be resolved either. You know, it, it's in effect uh, a royal whodunit and who doesn't love one of them. 
I'm so no, I can't say I'm too surprised. For people who might not know too much about the princess in the tower, maybe they've only seen the painting of of the two blonde boys in the tower. Can you give us a a very quick outline of what happened and what the mystery is? Uh, uh, yes, certainly. Towards the end of the Wars of the Roses, the House of York was victorious, and everything appeared to be. Um, Pretty perfect for them. Edward IV was on the throne. He was the great victor. But Edward IV spent the last uh, years of his life pretty much partying hard, and he died young at the age of 40, leaving behind two young sons. Now, child heirs are never ideal for any, um, you know, any royal family. And essentially what happened was there was a court faction war at play during the final years of the Yorkist reign. Two sides, pretty basically, one um, on the Woodville side, so the two princes' maternal relations, and the other side, their paternal uncle, Richard, the Duke of Gloucester. Uh, it's very difficult to condense things into, into a short um, discussion, but quite simply, Richard, in the end, he took power. Now, whether we say he usurped the throne, he seized the throne, or he rightfully was offered the throne, it depends on your viewpoint of Richard III. The bottom line is he became king in place of his young nephews. The boys were placed in the tower and they disappeared from view. Nobody knows what happened to them. There's many theories. Every historian has their own theory. I have my own. The bottom line is nobody knows the answer for definite, and I don't think we ever will, but it certainly remains a heated topic of discussion, and it does often depend on where you fall on the discussion of Rich III himself, the boy's uncle. You mentioned there that it really comes down to what you think of Richard III himself. Why do you think he has proven such a contentious character that people become so obsessed by? I have to be careful here. Um... I think that there's a couple of factors at play with Richard III. The first is, is he's been portrayed throughout history as a villain. Now, villains always attract attention. Um, I think we live in the last couple of decades, at least, we certainly live in the age of the anti-hero, which also appeals to a lot of people. Um, you, you know, the villain isn't truly a villain. There's something more appealing about them and so on. There's also this idea that the Tudors themselves, the Tudors are, we know they're the biggest industry in in the study of history. You know, everybody loves, uh, in inverted commas, the, the Tudors. But a lot of people also despise what the Tudors did and what they became. And of course, if you despise something, you need the opposite to that. And who better than the man, the first man of the Tudors killed and got out of the way, and that's Richard III. So I think there's certainly an element of uh, championing somebody who stood against the Tudors. I think that's appealing for some people. The second is the anti-hero. The third is that a lot of people are attracted to the concept of a victim who was wronged. And again, for many people, when it comes to Richard III, he was uh, you know, a good man, a just man, who is killed before his time and then his name, you know, dirtied in history. There's a magnificent pull there for people who who read into and accept that reading of history. And of course, when we come down to the modern phenomenon of Richard III, I think a lot has got to do with books such as The Daughter of Time in the 1950s. Um, they have really 
pulled in, you know, a whole generation of people who have grown up across the last 50 years with this picture of Richard in their mind. Whether the picture is true or not, again, that's historians remain hotly, you know, divided on that. Um, but I think that's certainly a, a big element of the pull of Richard. Um, I mean, you, you you could put it down to some people feel that he was, in effect, at its most simplistic level, a bullied boy, and people want to champion the bully. If, again, if you buy into that, of course, other people will think that he was the original bully. But, again, this is why the topic is fascinating. So what are the main... Um the biggest theories about what happened to the princess in the tower? I think the one that the majority of mainstream historians are behind, and that includes myself, is that Richard III killed the princess in the tower. You know, he was the the prime suspect. I mean, the, the, the debate often gets reduced to, quite simply, Richard either had motive or he didn't have motive. Now... For many people, again, myself included, I think the person who had the most motive to kill the princes in the tower was without doubt Richard. Supporters of Richard will say he had no motive. And this all comes down to the status of the two boys because once Richard became king, the whole premise of his kingship was based around the fact that the two boys, his nephews, had been made illegitimate. Uh, the theory went, I find it a very convenient theory myself, but the theory went that Richard had discovered that the two boys were illegitimate because their father had been married already before he had married the boy's mother, Elizabeth Woodville. And in the eyes of the church of the day, this made them illegitimate. Therefore, they were simply placed aside and Richard was next in line. He became king. Very convenient, I have to say, but, you know... Uh, Again, that whole marriage contract is still something hotly disputed. It may or may not be true. Um, but the the concept goes that because Richard had made the boys illegitimate, there was no longer any motive for him to kill the boys. They were out of the way. I don't believe that's the case because, as history had shown during the Wars of the Roses, being made illegitimate or being uh, given an act of a tainter may have made you, in theory, uh, not in line to the throne, but that didn't stop Henry Tudor becoming king. It didn't stop Edward the Fourth becoming king. It didn't stop Henry the Fourth early on becoming the king. You know, laws could be could be overturned, and I think for Richard, the motive there for him to kill the princes in the tower was that even though the boys at the time had been made illegitimate and were just boys, in ten years' time they would be men and they would have supporters. And at that time, Richard had his own son his own son's future, to think about. The entire premise of the Wars of the Roses were descendants of kings fighting each other. Richard knew this. Richard had come from this world. He knew that he couldn't leave two boys to risk, in 20 years' time, his grandson or son fighting against his nephew's blood. That is the biggest motive for anybody. And... I get it. I've kind of seemed to be the only person at the moment who who comes up with the concept that people are so fixated on Richard being Richard couldn't have been this bad uncle to his nephews. People forget his primary objective once he became king was to be a good father. He had to look after his son's 
claim his son's line. Now, we, with hindsight, know that his son died a year later. He didn't know that in 1483. He's looking down at his son or his nephews. Who's it going to be? So I think Richard was a bad uncle to be a good father in its most reductive, simplistic terms. And I think that often gets overlooked. Um, and as I say, that is the ultimate motive for me, for anyone, you know, to, to protect his line. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We could have a written confession beyond all doubt from the perpetrator and people would question it. It's just the nature of history. And I think this case is far too big for that ever to happen. Put aside Richard for one moment. The key to any great mystery is that that there are other options, some of which are definitely more plausible than others. But what are some of the more out there or more less mainstream theories that have been thrown around about the Princess and the Tower? So if we remove Richard from the conversation, the other suspects in question tend to be around, centred around the people who were against Richard and then later on managed to, uh, you know, dirty his name even though they did the deed. We've got Margaret Beaufort, for example. Uh, Margaret Beaufort is often, and certainly in the last 10 years with the rise of social media, seems to have become this prime suspect. Now, how anyone imagines that this small, quite devout, though not as fanatic as some people think, small lady managed to get into the Tower of London under the noses of all the guards, or even if we say that she'd managed to get one of her assassins in and killed the two most protected and precious boys in the kingdom is beyond me. Um, I just don't think anyone had access to the Tower of London without the King say so. You know, this was a fortress. It was heavily protected. So Margaret Beaufort, for me, is an outlandish theory. I think it's she did have means. She did, um, uh, she did have motive, motive certainly, but the opportunity is not possible. We often hear of Henry Tudor. Um, Henry Tudor killed the boys once he became king. But that overlooks the fact that the boys disappeared in 1483. Henry didn't come to the throne until 1485. Are we saying the boys survived until that point and then Henry killed them? I, I, that's not something that I also feel is quite plausible. Um, two people who often aren't mentioned in the conversation are the Howards. So the Howards are the father and son earls um, who rose to power under Richard III. Their entire rise to their prominence in 1483 was, was because of the patronage of Richard III. One of them also possessed the dukedom of Norfolk, and this was something that had been in the hands of one of the young princes in the tower, Richard. So what better motive, motive there... And they had the opportunity, as Richard III's men, to go into the tower and silence some, uh, silence the boys who could, in future, also prove a thorn in their side dynastically. Uh, one one aspect of the princes in the tower, as well, that's not often considered, is everybody's looking for these these key figureheads: Richard III, Margaret Beaufort, the Duke of Buckingham, the Howards. What about some small, unknown figure? who was in one of their households. Now, these were great men who had massive households. Um, with their master rising higher and higher, 
so too would of their household, so too would the household knights, the household clerks, etc. Who's not to say that one of these men got into the tower and committed an act of murder knowing that it would benefit their master? And the, the, the unfortunate truth for the princes in the tower in 1483 is that apart from their wood-filled maternal relations, everybody would have prospered with their death. There were simply too many people who stood to profit. So I think it could very well just be a complete nobody who had done it. We see the same thing with the Jack the Ripper mystery. People are always looking for a key figurehead there, whether it's royal, a doctor, and so on. The likelihood is probably would have been somebody unknown. Something that you said uh, there that intrigued me was that you said in the last 10 years, with the rise of social media, people have become really interested in Margaret Beaufort as a suspect. Do you think that... Um, there's been a big growth in interest in this case. Now people can delve so deep into it in social media. Or do you think, or has it always been a case that's really intrigued people over history? I think from my view, at least, I think the difficulty has been that there's always been a basic interest in the case. Otherwise it wouldn't have survived the 400 and 500 years without social media. So we, we've always known the Princess in the Tower as a mystery has been there. I think it's generally been centred around Richard III and people who are interested in Richard III because, you know, the whole premise of the Richard III Society, for example, has been to try and unmalign his name. And a big part of that was the Princess in the Tower mystery. Now, what social media has created, and this is not just for this, of course, it's for everything today, it's created vast interest but based on very limited knowledge. All we see in the last 10 years is the very basic argument that she was a devout fanatic who dreamed all of her life to put Henry on the throne, and uh, she did it. So she did kill the Princess of the Tower. She was this evil, uh, evil woman, you know, the power behind the throne, all of which can get pulled apart by any, any credible historian in a matter of moments. In the 80s and 90s, the name Margaret Beaufort simply wasn't present in conversations regarding the death of the Princess of the Tower. Now, I appreciate that's just one person's viewpoint um, across time, but that really intrigued me because, again, she, she never has been mentioned apart from a very vague 1600s um, account by a chap called George Buck, who we could consider to be the first Ricardian, she was never really mentioned in the discussion of the deaths of the princes in the tower. It's a, it's a recent phenomenon, fueled by historical fiction, and certainly has had a lot of, um, you know, a lot of a lot of fuel thrown on it in the world of social media. Because it's very simple now to just say Margaret Beaufort did it. Them four words. Share your opinion, and other people agree, and, and that's it. You know, they, there's no there's no depth of research there. So yes, I think Margaret Beaufort. What's fascinating for me, Margaret Beaufort, is that it seems to be with the case of the study of Richard III that in order to unmalign this king, there's a desperate need to malign somebody else, and it's poor Margaret who has fallen victim to that. Um, you know, she's someone who should be celebrated and championed, not torn down in 2020. This has been voted history's greatest mystery, but do you think it could ever be definitively solved? What would need to happen in order to draw a line under this case? Uh, I'm going to say no, and certainly based on 
our real world experience in the last couple of years of how tribal uh, many things have got, whether this is uh, politics, football, you know, history and so on. It doesn't matter what evidence is presented to the general public. People are going to refute it. You, you know, th- th- there's no doubt about that. We often get this this preoccupation with how we have to test the bones in Westminster Abbey because there's a, a set of bones there that were allegedly those of the princes um, based on uh, their original capture and their place there back in the 17th century, but also on a, a 1930s scientific um, investigation, which we now know was uh, significantly flawed. People seem to think that if we test these bones, it will give us the answers to the case. If we did test the bones, they would be able to tell us... Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the science investigation is not really my my thing, but I believe they would tell us if they could plausibly be the princes. But they don't tell us who, who killed those boys. It doesn't answer the question. Um, it just satisfies a mild curiosity the one thing the testing of the bones would do is it would answer once and for all whether Perkin Warbeck, who was a later pretender who claimed to be one of the princes, was in fact telling the truth. Because if the bones in the in Western Sarabi are proven to be the boys found in the tower, then of course Perkin Warbeck was clearly um, leading a fraudulent life. But they don't answer who killed the boys. And I just don't think... We could have a written confession beyond all doubt from the perpetrator and people would question it. It's just the nature of history. And I think this case is far too big for that ever to happen. That was Nathan Armin. If you found this conversation interesting, then remember to keep an eye out for our upcoming podcast series, which will be going into a lot more depth about the mystery surrounding the princes in the tower. That will be appearing later this year. You can also read the original nominations for all 20 mysteries on our website at historyextra.com forward slash greatest hyphen mystery. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next tomorrow for a lecture from Lauren Johnson on Henry VI.